Analyze Asia is brought to you by Esavel. Do you manage your own IT for distributed teams across Asia Pacific? Then you know how painful that can be. Esavel helps your in-house team by taking cumbersome tasks off their hands and giving them the tools to manage IT effectively. Get help across Asia Pacific from onboarding, procuring devices to real-time IT support and offboarding. With our state-of-the-art platform, gain full control of all your IT infrastructure in one place. Our team of IT support pros are keen to help you grow. Check out esevel.com and get a demo today. Use our referral code ASIA for 10% off. Terms and conditions apply. And so there's a, a tremendous amount of friction that exists there because I think we're still at the point where we're using traditional insurance products that are kind of been invented in 1970s to try to add this digital layer on top of it. So where, where the insurtech have struggled, I would say, is that unless there is a significant amount of product innovation, it's very hard to kind of really optimize the, the product. So be, becoming a full stack was one of the hypotheses that the insurtechs pursued. And we've seen those take off quite well, let's say, in, in States, in China, and now India is kind of another market that that's really progressing very well in it. Again, it boils down to, for a lot of the insurtech, is that there's a lot of regulation attached to the products as well. Welcome to Analyze Asia, the premier podcast dedicated to dissecting the pulse of business technology and media in Asia. I'm Bernard Leung, and the insurtech industry in Asia-Pacific is booming and growing, and there's a lot of things to cover within the insurance industry. With me today, an old friend, George Castleman, president and founder of InsureTech Association, and someone who I know is Mr. InsureTech himself. So, George, welcome to the show. Thank you, Bernard. Really happy to be on the show today. Yes, I think we're going to have a pretty good and interesting conversation on InsureTech. But before we start, always the first question we want to ask is your origin story. How did you start your career? It's a pretty interesting story for me. So I started my career in, in Canada and they kind of taking me all across the world. So basically from Canada, working in the, with the startups, very, very early iteration of the InsurTech startup, which at that time was called IIT startup. Then that took me to, to Asia and then from Hong Kong, Singapore, Indonesia, came back to Singapore. So kind of done my round all around the world, both from the tech perspective then into insurance and then back to tech. Can you talk about your role in the InsurTech Association and what does the association do? And Yeah, that's a good question. So for the InsurTech Association, we started in 2017. And at the time, it was still very, very early and not many people knew about it. It was kind of really at the very beginning of, of the InsurTech movements. People generally associated more by fintech than mm -hmm. In short, that was seen as really a subset of it. So when we started, the intent for the association was to bring the ecosystem together. And uh, in short, is very much more on the intersection between health tech and, and fintech, but it is, and it is quite a unique flavor. So my role with the association is I founded it and I've been running it for past gosh, now five, five, six years. And through all the ups and downs uh, of COVID and, and building it out, basically I kind of stayed at the helm and we, we're pretty active right now in the region. Southeast Asia is still a big focus for us, but uh, it is expanding to places like some, some activities around Japan, India, 
So it, it's been a pretty interesting ride. Mm. And that's also like coordinating, maybe being an industry body, working with different governments, associations or other insurtech as well, right? Yeah, that's right. So what what are the things that we, we do in addition to kind of bridging the all, all the members together? It is working with the, with the regulators to kind of help them understand the insurtech movement, how they can support it or how they can enable it. And we're also having a close interaction with the other associations where we see now more of a crossover between the regions. So some of the startups out of Europe are looking to expand into our region. Some of the Asian startups have reached a scale where they're looking to go to Europe. So there is a natural kind of a collaboration across the regions as well. The one thing I am pretty curious is because you have a very interesting background. You have done the corporate side of the insurance industry, and then you have also done the startup side of the insurtech industry. So I'm going to start off with in the distant past, you were the startup co-founder and CEO of NRP which was acquired by the Aetna insurance brokers. What did the startup experience teach you about trying to combine technology and insurance? Gosh, where do I start? I think the startup experience was a really a full lot experience. When I started the RIP, I think I had this, maybe a little bit of a naive view of there's big problems in insurance and it's ripe for disruption. So what it, the startup experience really taught me was a lot of it has to do with the location that you start a startup. Again, the naivety was that I thought Singapore was a good place to start the insurtech startup, but that turns out that the insurance market in Singapore is, is decent size, but actually it's very big enough for really kind of building a, a huge successful uh, business on the insurance side. So you kind of need to start with a handful of the markets like India, Indonesia, which has a, a, a native scale there. And based on that, then kind of that gives you a much faster growth and, and the trajectory for you to kind of turbocharge uh, the expansion. And uh, so th that was kind of a big learning that came out of it. And that's a learning that I share with a lot of our early stage startup founders where they get excited about it. And I think the, the other thing that I've learned is that a lot of it in insurance have to do with the timing as well. I think it's probably not just insurance, but a lot of other industries. So I kind of felt that the time was ripe for the insurance, insurance tech to really take off. But uh, what it ended up being is that it was still fairly early and uh, very full of friction. So we ended up pivoting through quite a few different models before we were able to find something that was better at scaling. And what it ended up being is it was actually startup insurance for startups, which was kind of a natural need for it. And at the same time, it gave a kind of a good scale in Singapore to be able to, to provide the insurance for those startups that fundraised, they needed to have an insurance from what their investors were asking them. So it was kind of more or less a, a defined need and going to the traditional route of talking to the insurance brokers was too painful. So that kind of naturally addressed that opportunity. So you just have just finished the a tenure as the chief commercial officer for ZA Tech or Zhongan Tech, which is That's a pretty right. well-known insurance giant in China. So. What have you learned from the experience from being the other side, which is the corporate side looking at insurance? So I think it's, I wouldn't call it like a 
totally corporate side, I think it's still like a, basically a unicorn because with, what's interesting about Zhongang is that while they're an insurer in China, outside of China, they actually function very much like a tech company. And it, it, it's a JV between the Zhongang and SoftBank. So it, it is a bit of a different animal. It does function very much like a tech startup in the international markets. I guess the, the, there's lots of interesting things that, that I've learned from it, both from a culture perspective and how the Eastern startups operate and, and expand. But I think one of the big learnings was that e- even at the scale of Zhongang and kind of working with the insurers, it was still full of friction. And the problem that was was being we were aiming to address to kind of productize the tech stack for the insurers, it, it wasn't as straightforward as I think we anticipated in the beginning. So as the productization was still progressing in the in the period that, that I was there, we were able to make progress, but it wasn't nearly as as much as the ambition was to kind of productize to like 80% and 20% is going to be custom work. So that, that was, I think, one of the big learnings that came out of it to say that in order for the insurance innovation to really happen, y- you need to achieve that level of standardization and productization. So there's still a, quite a bit of us to be able to achieve that. So I think given your breadth of experience, what are the important lessons that you can share with my audience on your career journey? Just the important lessons is that I just continue to be curious and don't be afraid to take a new path. When I joined, for example, a lot of people were very surprised. They said, oh, okay, are you sure? As a Chinese a unicorn, like it's going to be a very big cultural shock. But for me, it was a huge curiosity. I kind of, you always hear about a tremendous innovation that's happening in the, in the Chinese ecosystem and the Chinese startups. So be able to be part of it and be able to help them. I kind of, when that opportunity came up, I just jumped on it. And of course, there were, there were challenges along the way, but it, it was overall a very, very good experience. And, and that's, my advice to everybody who is kind of thinking about their their journey is that, you know, be, don't be afraid to take a risks. You know, it doesn't need to be always just taking the risks when you're early in the career, it can be throughout the career. I think the other thing is uh, when you're thinking about doing something like a startup yourself, it's always good to, to consider whether you want to start a startup yourself or you want to join somebody who is like a growth stage startup. That was kind of the advice that I've given to a few people as well, because if you go from corporate directly to finding your own startup, that's a pretty big stretch. And then I kind of felt like I went from top to very challenging early stage startup. And then I kind of found that middle spot. I wish I kind of, my journey was from the corporate, join Zhongang and then do my early stage startup. I think that would be probably a little bit easier. Which comes to the main subject of the day that is talking about tech in the Asia Pacific and also some of the interesting lessons learning from China tech or tech giant for that matter. But I think I'm going to start the conversation by asking you to define insure tech and how does technology interweave with the insurance industry? Yeah, so the insure tech is is something that again is it's relatively new compared to like the other verticals. So fintech started much earlier, and insure tech is kind of I would say lagging a little bit in terms of the development, but it is quickly catching up. So what insure tech is is basically combining the insurance turbocharging it with the technology. Whenever you think about insurance, you kind of imagine this very archaic industry that have lagged behind and it still uses a lot of very traditional methods of selling, like using agents and brokers to sell fairly complicated insurance products that not many people 
understand. So it, it is like something that as an industry probably is more remin- reminiscent from like 1980s to 1990s than it is from year 2022. So as the InsurTech attempts to reduce those frictions in the, in both kind of a distribution and usage of insurance, that, that's basically the big ambition. And uh, in terms of the InsurTech, it kind of all started globally around the same time. It was like 2013, 2014 is where the investment in, in insurance started to change from kind of a insurance companies investing to a VCs waking up to this opportunity of disrupting or, or really transforming the insurance industry. And that the trend of investment have really ramped up over the years to a point where accounting for a significant part of fintech in, in Asia in terms of the investment. Mm-hmm. So I think it's still relatively early in that journey. I personally, when, when I kind of jumped into it 2015, 2016, I was expecting for it to change a lot faster than it has. So kind of a seven years in, I, I still sometimes feel a little bit frustrated that we haven't really moved the needle as much. And then there's probably a few reasons for that to kind of not progress as quickly as possible. We can we can probably cover it later on in the conversation. But th- there are some bright spots. And those bright spots are China definitely kind of being as one of the frontier markets when it comes to the insurance innovation. Digital really took off, InsurTech really took off in China very, very quickly, Zhongang being one of the prime examples. And then closer to home here in, in, in Singapore and Southeast Asia, Grab has really done a very interesting progress on the InsurTech front, kind of starting from the ground up about four years ago to really kind of creating a fairly significant business on, on the back of this InsurTech venture. Can you describe the total market opportunity for the insurance market in the Asia Pacific? I guess we will include China and India as well. Yeah, I think it, if I look at the Insurance premiums, I think it's getting close to about $2 trillion last that I checked. So we are looking at that's probably the most immediate addressable market. And this is the money, money that's going into it every year, basically people kind of contributing this much to the insurance. And I'm sure you understand that kind of insurance has a fairly diverse set of products. Right. Some of it is more like on the life insurance side. Some of it is more reminiscent to like investment savings products, where on the general insurance side is very much like a car insurance, home insurance, much more of a pure product. So it's a little bit like mixing apples and oranges together. But if we look at how much money is kind of flowing in the insurance industry, that's around that. And uh, the other interesting part is that when you compare the premiums uh, per capita in, in Asia versus something like Europe, it's still a multiple of like multiple of how much it can grow. So I think there's a big, big opportunity in Asia for us to to tackle this. And because many more people are entering the middle class, and this is where they really see a need for insurance to protect the assets, protect the health. I think there is going to be a much, much faster growing opportunity in Asia on the back of that. So can you distinctly talk about like the different types of insurance markets? For example, we know in consumer, we have life and term insurance, and then there is also reinsurance and also insurance pertaining to business. For example, we have cybersecurity insurance. I am sure that there is somewhere director's liability insurance or some people call DNO. And even like now people talking about crypto insurance as well. Yeah. So as I said, like, I think there is a quite a huge variety of insurance which is both a benefit and the complexity that that sits within insurance. So insurance is one of those products that can basically attach to any anything. So it's a flip side of a risk, 
So whenever there is something that has a probability of happening and it's bad, generally there's an insurance product that can be addressed on, on the back of that. The big clusters of, of insurance is things around health insurance, automotive insurance. Usually those are kind of the, the biggest. And then, of course, on the business side, you have employee benefits insurance, which is health specifically for employees of the corp companies. So those are kind of the common insurance products. And then you obviously have things like around travel insurance and all more exotic products like new types of products, like you mentioned, is cyber and crypto insurance. Those are uh, new, new products. And I, I would say like when it comes to this type of new products in Asia, especially, it's still very, very early days. The, for example, the cyber insurance is the biggest market is US is like a huge, huge opportunity there. And there's a lot more premium going into it. In Asia, I think people are just getting their feet wet a little bit with, with cyber insurance. As with many insurance times, you, you have this problem of uh, it's a trust-based product. So people are, in the beginning are we very questionable whether the, this is something that can really address their problem. Is it something that they really need? Is it going to pay when something happens? So this type of new insurance probably is, has been a little bit less on the commercial side in Asia. But what's interesting is that in Asia, we've seen a lot more innovation when it comes to the products that are embedded products. And this is much kind of a smaller emerging products that attach to the existing products. So what a lot of people don't realize is that things like warranty, your iPhone warranty, Apple Care or Apple Plus is actually an insurance product. Mm. The beauty about it is that you don't call it insurance, so people are a little bit more relaxed about it. But warranties are included. A lot of things that are being sold now on the electronics websites, like Shopee has a, a warranties attached to it. There's cancellation insurance, which is, for example, when you book script on uh, something like Cluck and you want to cancel it, there's an insurance product attached to it. And then there's the insurance that gets embedded within like even grab journey where you can like personal accident or delay. This is also an insurance product that, that gets embedded within that journey. One key question is that in the insurance industry, you have a product, there is an actuarial performed onto it. And then you probably know what's the distribution as such. I think one curious thing I always wonder, you know, is it in the customer acquisition side? Is it in trying to figure out the best mathematical models for the actuarial science itself? So maybe you can help me to think about this. What are the key challenges that InsurTech is trying to solve? I remember when I was working in AWS, when we talked to insurance companies, it's about workflow digitization, using AI to read documents, extract information from documents, because writing on piles and piles of information into forms and figuring out how to pull those data is also another part of the InsurTech side. Yeah, so there's a, a tremendous amount of friction that exists there because I think we're still at the point where we're we're using traditional insurance products that are kind of been invented in 1970s to try to add this digital layer on top of it. So where where the InsurTech have struggled, I would say, is that unless there is a significant amount of product innovation, it's very hard to kind of really optimize the, the product. So Becoming a full stack was one of the hypotheses that the insurtechs pursued. And we've seen those take off quite well, let's say in, in States, in China, and now India is kind of another market that that's really progressing very well in it. Again, it boils down to for a lot of the insurtech is that there's a lot of regulation attached to the products as well. So the problems that 
kind of in short, like try to solve is starting with the simpler problems, like how do you digitize some of the sales journeys and then going into like a little bit more on the backend optimization of the kind of a process of uh, servicing and, and the kind of automation. So th- those are kind of the two big distinct categories where you either have the B2B tech, which is servicing the insurers and basically trying to digitize their tech stack more. And then the second one is on the distribution and kind of a sales of the insurance product. The third one, which is the kind of a newer, newer stuff is the digital platforms getting into the insurance themselves or tech, and the likes of Grab, Shopee. Uh, basically becoming a both the distribution point as well as driving some of the product innovation so that they can plug it in much better within their user journeys. Mm. So can you tell me one thing you know that most people do not know about the insurance industry or the tech industry? One thing that people don't know about the tech industry, I, I guess that most people don't realize how complex the regulation is and how different it is from country to country. So that's been one of the big struggles from for the InsurTech to grow. So as the as the InsurTech starts, for example, in Indonesia and they look to go to Malaysia, you would think that it's a kind of a neighbor country. So it should be fairly harmonized when it comes to regulation. So you should be able to scale fairly quickly. But it is restarting it from the ground zero almost as you as you look to expand into a new country. Mm, there's an interesting observation. That is where I want to ask you. The insurance market is one of the slowest moving industries due to regulation and legislation in different countries. Can you explain the barrier, the barriers to entry and explain why it is so difficult for startups to actually attack the market? I think naturally the regulation is very tight for insurance because it is one of those very trust-based products. So over the years, I think the analogy is kind of like the taking an airplane where the levels of security keeps on accumulating. And the same thing happened, I think, to the regulation and insurance where there was a lot of fraud from different sides, from either the agents mis-selling the products or the insurance companies doing some funky stuff on the products. Because basically it's one of the very few industries where you take the money in and you have customers' money and then you have to, on the event, you have to pay it out. So a lot of the times the insurance companies, there's a level of reluctance to pay out the money. And that basically that takes a hit against your profits. So as a regulator, I think there's a very fine balance to say, how do we keep it as a fair game and make sure that the consumers are well protected. So if they do pay money and something happens, that there is a level of coverage. And considering that as a fairly complicated financial product, there's not really this kind of a high level of intervention from the regulator that that tends to happen. So the reason why that have impacted the startups, I think, is that generally with the regulator coming in very, very early, startups felt like they need to have licenses and interaction with the, with the regulator, which tends to introduce slow down the innovation especially on the product innovation side because everything kind of becomes ongoing dialogue with the with the regulator and the regulators tend to be much more proactive when it comes to managing those products so uh, again the problem becomes once you kind of go through that journey in the regulator in indonesia you go to the second country it's not like you can use that template to easily copy paste 
because the regulators function right now largely in the silos and there's fairly limited amount of interaction between the regulators. Mm. So how is the regulation of insurance differing and evolving across markets in the Asia Pacific? So the, the regulation differs in the way that e each country has their own slightly different flavor of the regulation. So if you think about the kind of a, the licenses that are there, there's a sales license, which is either kind of you go as a agent, broker or financial advisor licenses. And that basically allows the digital sales of products. And then the more complex one is when you become an insurance uh, product manufacturer yourself. And of course, there's one in the back where you can get a license to become a reinsurer to kind of aggregate those risks across. So each of those licenses have a degree of complexity. So to get a broker license, sometimes it takes six to 12 months to get an insurance license. You can get up to two years or, or, or longer to get that insurance license because you do have to jump through a lot of hoops to convince the regulator that you have A, capital, B, expertise, and C, the kind of a team and, and the credibility to play in the market that you're not going to hurt the consumers. And that, that's where the complexity comes in for the regulators to, to kind of provide those ability for the startups to really run at the program. So a, a lot of the times what, what ends up being is that the startups tend to try to find the fastest way to innovate. And the fastest ways to innovate within the regulatory space have been you either become a tech provider to the insurers or you become a distribution partner for the insurers, which becomes like a, an agent or like online sales. Mm. Can you talk about some interesting insure tech companies across the Asia Pacific? I think you have talked about Grab, Zhongan to a certain extent. Can you share other examples that are interesting? So the ones that I find very interesting right at this point are on one end, we have India coming online as a kind of a big innovation hub for InsurTech. The regulator there have realized that there's a tremendous opportunity for India to, to become a hub for global hub for InsurTech. So they went basically to, to the insurance industry and they said that they want the insurance industry to triple within the next three years without increasing the premiums. So that and then at the same time said, we'll be very willing to give insurance licenses to new companies, which kind of all the signals are pointing into the correct direction. And uh, there are quite a number of interesting startups like Arco, Digit, and uh, Zopware, uh, which basically jumped into the InsurTech a couple of years ago. And then I think now they're at the scale where they're able to really push ahead into a very, very interesting direction. And in in India specifically, there's a this kind of a model of online to offline is taken off in a quite a quite an interesting way. So you have not just a digital or traditional way of selling through agents, which we have this kind of a blended approach where the journey can start with, let's say somebody buying a car in a dealership, but then very quickly go into the digital end of the journey. And then the products are much more catered towards that kind of a, a blended journey. So that online to offline hybrid approach is something that is taken off very well in India. And on the other end of the spectrum, I think there's a number of very interesting Web3 projects that are also experimenting in InsurTech. And this is, this is very, very new to everybody. But I, I think talking about like a regulatory space and kind of how it could potentially constrain some of the more innovative use cases. There is, I think, some interesting hypothesis about the Web3 and how that can help to, at least in the early stages, 
generate some of the innovative use cases and ability to scale it across a wider wider set of users before kind of having to to consider the regulatory aspects. I think in specifically to the crypto web free space, the question I have, and I think about this for quite a while in terms of thinking about decentralized insurance is the li- bootstrapping that liquidity. And it's actually very hard because you need to think about how do you aggregate enough people to form that pool to get a float to actually ensure across that poor people. I think this is one of the challenges. I mean, we can talk more about it, but I want to get down to it since I think you talk about the interesting insure tech companies. What are the key trends in the insure tech market within Asia Pacific that you find exciting now? Yeah, so I think that the key trend would be the online to offline aspects. So somehow it's getting blended together. So the recognition I think is that the embedded, embedded approach that was initially the big focus itself it can only take you so far so for example with grab they might have like i think last year they did something like 200 million insurance policies those micro policies and each one of those policies is you know roughly less than a dollar type of range so the initial hypothesis was from there and having that that scale of a platform, they should be able to go into more of a medium size to larger size insurance products. But that leap has not really successfully happened because people kind of have a, a different parts of the kind of mind around embedded and, and the other insurance. So similar to kind of how if you buy the Apple Care product. And then Apple comes to you and says, hey, and we have a term insurance product, you, you'll be quite a confused and you might not kind of jump on it right away. So similar thing is happening on the, on the digital embedded insurance proposition. So from the embedded, then it move, now it's moving into the, this hybrid channel where you say that there's probably still a need for some sort of a human interaction, especially if you're thinking about larger type of insurance because you do want to have the ability to put the trust into a person and it might not be a one-to-one interaction where you know you sit across from an agent and they're there on the ipad that's kind of how the old traditional way of of things work but maybe there's some new mechanisms where there's a combination of like teleservicing uh digital channels all kind of blended in in a very, very new way. And that has been proven to be the case in India, China, and a few other markets like Indonesia, where there is this kind of a natural blend of this digital and the human in a picture that that's been quite a, quite an exciting trend because that helps to bridge the gap between the smaller products and more complicated products. And together with that, I think for the hybrid, what we've seen is that places like social media is becoming a very interesting extension as well. Because when it comes to building trust, this is one of the places where there is a natural place for when it comes to the influencers, for better or worse, we, we do place the trust in them and to kind of assist with whether, you know, certain things when it comes to the purchases in the e-commerce or a little bit more on the financial services products. So I think there's definitely still a lot of room for improvement because I, again, as much as we put trust in the social media, there's a high potential for abuse and kind of people steering in the wrong direction. So I think that there's still quite a bit of quirks to work out, but this is one of the, the additional directions in this online to offline where that the things are progressing, where the social media, like it, the, the last that I, I checked, on the, for example, on, in China, TikTok itself accounts for something like 
number five, if they aggregate everything from it, all the sales of insurance through TikTok is something like number five insurance company in China. So it's massive and uh, it is growing very quickly. Um, and I think outside of China, it's still probably a little bit earlier, but there, there are some signals that it probably is going to follow similar type of trajectory as well. Hmm. So I'm thinking about people live streaming and selling insurance at the same time then. That's like an example of how people will be using TikTok, right? Exactly. Yeah. So in China, how it worked is that people started talking about, you know, financial education. So they're not really live streaming, like I buy insurance now, but they're, they're very much focusing on the education aspects. And because they have credibility with their audiences, that naturally kind of steers the audience towards, oh, and then kind of a, a here is a, a very simple insurance product. Let's say a health insurance product that you get first three months free if you buy through this QR code. So we've been talking a lot from the disruption side where you think about startups trying to disrupt the insurance market. So thinking about InsurTech, how about traditional insurance companies thinking about adapting InsurTech into their current operations in the midst of digital disruption or digital transformation as well? So I think that's an interesting point as well, because when, when it comes to the traditional insurance companies, when this whole insurance tech movement started about 2016, again, 2017, there was a very significant fear from the insurance companies that the disruption is just around the corner. I think they recognized that insurance was a laggard as an industry and they kind of seen what, what was happening in, in the banking space and the e-commerce and, and other verticals. And they kind of felt very fearful that there's going to be a big wave of disruption. So in the beginning, there was a, a big push to collaborate with the startups and kind of see how they can introduce the like POCs and stuff. O over the years, I think there was a realization that insurance is a lot more complex that and it, it will take much longer for it to be disrupted. So I would say that there was a little bit of a pullback from the insurance companies where they kind of felt safer and that fear probably dissipated a little bit. But over the last, I would say, two years, I think especially during COVID, again, kind of acted as a catalyst for more digitalization because agents and, and all distribution kind of needed to improve during that period and close some of the bigger gaps. So there's definitely been a big push from the insurance companies to digitize at least the baseline of the operations. And now I think there's a lot more focus towards, you know, how do we introduce elements of automation? How do we introduce some of the, reduce some of the surface frictions for, from the consumer side? So we talked about China earlier. China has probably the most advances that we've seen in InsurTech, for example, Alibaba, the likes of Chong'an and even Ping'an as well. Can you talk about the water drop model? Because I hear you talking about it. Any new business model innovations that they have done that can be adapted, say, into Southeast Asia or even India as well? Yeah, so water drop was an interesting model. And it was, in fact, water drop and financial both kind of doing something fairly similar. So what they did as a mutual insurance program, and again, I think what they realized was similar to what, what everybody else is realizing is that Regulation is very painful to start innovation. So they've kind of gone a little bit around the regulation in the beginning by saying that this is not an insurance, it's a mutual protection program. And following a very similar model to insurance where you say like it is about pulling together enough money to pay out claims. And it is about low, low, large numbers where you need to have enough scale to be able to basically smoothen out the inflows and outflows. So if you have 100 people in the village insuring each other, 
the chances are if one of them or two of them gets sick, you can wipe out this pool and kind of end up in the, in the red. But if you have 100 million people, if uh, even 2 million people get get into trouble, you have enough of the smoothing to be able to kind of you know, progress and pay out all the claims without any major issues. So that was the hypothesis that proven quite successfully by Waterdrop. So they were able to get to a fairly significant scale. I, I can't remember what's the latest numbers from, from Waterdrop. Uh, but uh, they got to a point where they were significant when it comes to the number of customers that they were protecting. And I think they, they got up to the point where they got on the radar of the of the regulator. And at that point, the regulator felt a little bit less comfortable that basically something that is not regulated is acting like an insurance. So there was, I think at that point, they had to adjust their model to become an insurance company themselves. So that was kind of a natural progression for them. And I think that that's probably an inspiration to some of the other innovation that, that might happen in the insure tech arena where you, you, you do want to have ability to iterate the product, to fine tune the product in the beginning until it gets to a certain scale. And then you want to worry about make sure that you're 100% tight when it comes to the things around consumer protection and kind of paying out all the right things and adjusting the claims and all the things related to what the regulator would worry about. And that model had been tried in, in Southeast Asia. So in Indonesia specifically, Chongang and Grab tried to do something similar, but starting with it, with kind of we insure as, as being the provider for the product. And it didn't really take off very well. I think there was a variety of factors for it. In China, the product that had been the most successful was actually a cancer insurance product. And it turns out that in Indonesia, people weren't as top of mind about cancer as they were in, in China through, again, kind of a variety of different reasons. So that being said, I think this kind of a model could end up being very good inspiration for Web3 or other models that are being experimented, whether it's kind of in India or any other big markets that are looking at introducing this type of new models. So I think, again, Indonesia was a good example where you, if you start with the insurance product, it naturally kind of limits the stuff that you can do on the innovation front. So I think it take taking them about like six months to a year to launch this product with all the design and all the regulatory stuff that needed to be jumped through. And then they launched it and three months later, there were basically very limited sales. So that innovation cycle was too slow, right? Eight months to launch a simple product to validate that it wasn't working. If we're doing something that's a little bit more innovative, like warranty product or something that's not not regulated, you, you probably would have launched 15 products during that time and probably would have found the product market fit at that point. So I'm going to pivot a little bit and turn into decentralized finance, crypto and Web3. I think despite we have an economic downturn or even crypto crash or whatever it is, what are your thoughts on applying blockchain technologies into insurance? I think th there was a couple of different ways that it has been tried. As with many kind of a blockchain hypes in the beginning, I think a lot of insurers tried like, can, what can we put on the insure on the blockchain? So things around can we put the containers, for example, that's being shipped and the container insurance on the blockchain have been tried. It, it wasn't successful, I think, through a variety of reasons because it felt like it was more of a problem. It was a solution looking for a problem than the other way around. But uh, I, I'm very hopeful about the Web3 space 
simply because I think there's a significant amount of movement that's going into it. I've, I've talked to quite a number of uh, Web3 companies that are struggling to find an insurance and they have a need for insurance. So I kind of feel that there are parallels, strong parallels with even the stuff that we done on the Anapi side last time, where there, you know, whenever there's a need, there's eventually going to be a solution for it. And the need is the key driver. And I, I feel that now in the Web3, there is a, a increasing amount of interest and the need for protection. I think right now we haven't really made that leap to figure out how exactly we're going to solve that problem. But I think that the fact that there are quite a number of projects in insurance going into the Web3, I think that gives me hope that there is going to be enough innovation happening in this in this segment. And of course, there's been projects like Nexus Financial, Nexus Mutual, I should say, that you know started with somebody who came from insurance, tried to apply those concepts and have, I think, gained quite a quite an interesting scale, initial scale on the back of that. And we've had some experience in, a, in Asia as well that have gone into the Web3. But I think so far, we haven't really seen anything that uh, have reached this scale that is going to be like sufficient enough for it to be self-sustainable. So it is probably, as with the fintech, I think insurtech is, is still kind of getting the feet in the water and is still kind of experimenting to find that right solution that will work for Web3 probably in the beginning and then kind of a crossover into the outside of the crypto world. I've seen a couple of them, but really focusing on NFTs, NFT insurance, like thinking about an art insurance. The question that I always have is, does the concept of decentralized insurance work given that it's written on a smart contract? I think it does certainly work. And in fact, I think insurance is a very good fit for smart contracts because in a way, insurance is a legal construct about paying out something in the future in case these conditions are met. I think right now where there's still some room to be closed is that uh, in order for the insurance to work sufficiently, you need to have enough data for it to be, be able to kind of trigger it. So things around having availability of oracles, providing the right data and having that data being sufficiently trusted, I think is something that will probably make insurance or protection in the, in the world of Web3 more viable. And the other thing I think about a lot is uh, for Web3 is not a copy and paste of let's take what has been constructed over the last 200 years in, in insurance and let's try to copy it into the into the Web3. I think the flavor is going to be very different. And so far, we I don't think we've seen the full story of how this is going to be this is going to be functioning. We do we do know that probably the high level concepts of having a sufficient number of of people or risks uh, together is something that will probably stay and it's something about kind of protecting that risk and pulling that risk together that's probably going to be the other aspect of it and then having a contract that triggers when, when the event happens i think that's kind of the probably the three aspects that that will remain the other components of it is probably going to have a very different flavor that that will be very specific to web3 and the strengths that 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 brings so what do you think that most Web3 startups get wrong about the insurance business? I think what most Web3 startups get wrong about insurance is that they, I guess they underestimate the, the amount of effort that goes into reducing fraud. And that's kind of been the story of, of insurance is that 
a, a lot of the resources that insurance dedicates on the technical claims handling it is really about reducing the fraud because a lot of the times you have this tendency of when you do insurance, people try to maximize the usage of it. So if let's say if I paid $100 towards the insurance, I kind of feel like I want to get that $100 back. But reality is that that's kind of not how the, the insurance works. So a lot of the Web3 startups, they think that let's just create a product that automatically triggers based on the, on the certain set of conditions. For example, a, a, a wallet being hit, and then they underestimate the amount of fraud that and gaming that people are going to try to do with this kind of a product. And that, and I think in itself, will probably introduce a need to have some sort of a technical expert still part of the equation. So there's probably a, some sort of a weighting that, you know, pure data-driven approach versus some technical expertise that brings into it. So I don't think it's it's purely it's purely possible to have it very, very, you know, data-driven only. So you're Mr. InsurTech. So I'm going to ask you this last question. What is the future of InsurTech in the Asia-Pacific? I think the future is still bright. I, I don't think we've seen the full story. I think it, it is still, we've seen a bit of a tip of the iceberg. And I think over the next 10 years, it's going to play it out in a very, very big way. I kind of think about it as with many other industries, it takes about 20 years for the full innovation to play out. And right now we're in the year seven, eight out of this 20 year journey. So I think we will see a big wave of disruption coming eventually. And it's going to reshape how the insurance functions. And I think people are going to actually see that there is a lot more opportunity for the insurance in their daily life. So rather than something that is an afterthought, that is a headache, it would become a very valuable tool where it kind of introduces a tool that removes a lot of the headaches for where we think about what if I get sick? What if, you know, something happens to my car? What if, you know, I, I miss my flight? A lot of those things right now is still very discreet. I think what will become is that insurance will become a much more of a comprehensive products where you just kind of say, remove that headache and tell me what are the risks that are there. And then I kind of just add on protection on the back of that. Mm. And I'm going to congratulate you. I know you're going to write a book on this, right? That that is one of the one of the things that I'm writing this year. Actually, my first book really is a little bit different. It's going to talk about the future of work because I feel that one of the things that is slowing down innovation in insurance is that the way that we work is actually highly inefficient. So I'm taking a stab at another big problem of how do we work in a better way. Okay, so I'm going to look forward to getting you on the show to talk about the book. So, George, many thanks for coming on the show and sharing your thoughts on the InsurTech in the Asia-Pacific. So in closing, I've got two quick questions. Question number one, do you have any recommendations which have inspired you recently? Any recommendations for books that inspired me recently? I have, I've been reading a lot in writing this book, so it's kind of hard to pick a specific book. But actually, I really enjoyed reading, rereading The Drive by Daniel Pink. I think that that book is, is about 10 years old, but it talks about how the intrinsic motivation is something that is, is very important when it comes to finding that drive at work. And autonomy, mastery, and purpose is something that kind of comes very, very close to it. And I think that that's probably one of the one of the ones that I kind of come back and reread a few times as well. How do my audience find you? You can find me on LinkedIn under the InsureTech link. 
or on the Twitter, um, the Mr. InsureTech. Okay. So you can definitely find us anywhere. And now we also on YouTube video as well. So give us a five-star rating, give us a like everywhere. And of course, subscribe to our channels and subscribe to our newsletter. So George, many thanks for coming on the show. And I'm looking forward to speak to you again on this podcast. Thanks, Barnett. It was fun.